This is VOA News. I'm Marissa Melton. No member-elect having received a majority of the votes cast, a speaker has not been elected. That's Cheryl Johnson, clerk of the U.S. House of Representatives, after one of the 11 votes the House took over the past three days before voting to adjourn late on Thursday. A band of 20 right-wing lawmakers again blocked California Congressman Kevin McCarthy on Thursday from becoming Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives in an ongoing protest that he's not beholden enough to the conservative cause. The third day of balloting to pick a new leader of the 435-member lower chamber of Congress looked much like the first two days with McCarthy, a 16-year lawmaker and the current House Republican leader, falling well short of the majority of 218 votes he needs to win the job. The United States will use pandemic-era restrictions to rapidly expel Cuban, Nicaraguan and Haitian migrants caught illegally crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. This according to President Biden on Thursday as he seeks to gain control of migration. Biden is expected to allow 30 up to 30,000 people from those three countries plus Venezuela to enter the country eat by air each month. But Biden said... Those who help to benefit from that plan must follow the rules. If you're trying to leave Cuba, Nicaragua, or Haiti, you have and we or have agreed to begin a journey to America, do not, do not just show up at the border. Stay where you are and apply legally from there. Starting today, if you don't apply through the legal process, you will not be eligible for this new parole program. Biden made those comments in Washington on Thursday. From Washington, you're listening to VOA News, and you can find more on this story at our website, voanews.com. The Coast Guard of the U.S. has removed more than 300 Cuban migrants from a remote island national park off the Florida coast. Homeland Security officials said 337 migrants were taken Thursday by Coast Guard Cutter from Dry Tortugas National Park on a 70-mile trip to Key West, where they'll be processed. They're among more than 700 migrants, mostly Cubans, who arrived in Florida by boats over the New Year's weekend. More than 4,400 Cubans and Haitians have arrived in Florida since August. The U.S. Census Bureau says more than 1 percent of the adult population in the United States was displaced by natural disasters in the past year. APZ Donahue has more. That's more than 3 million people. The Household Pulse Survey says they were forced out of their homes by hurricanes, floods, fires, tornadoes, or other disasters. Nearly one million people were impacted in Florida. The state was hit hard by Hurricanes Ian and Nicole in the fall. The survey says more than a third were out of their homes for less than a week. About one in six never returned to their homes. The Census Bureau says invitations were sent to more than a million households to take part in the experimental survey and collected more than 70,000 responses. I'm Ed Donahue. Known for a history that includes civil rights activism and music, Nashville's Fisk University has made a giant leap for a historically black college and university in the United States, women's gymnastics. AP correspondent Norman Hall. Fisk University, a private school with 1,000 students, is the first historically black school to take part in an NCAA women's gymnastics meet. Coach Corrine Tarver admits she knew it would be tough to recruit from the ground up. I didn't know how, I mean, I kind of was like, there's no way I'm going to get 15 girls. I knew I could get athletes. I just didn't think I was going to be able to get this many. The squad currently trains in an off-campus gym. 
Coach Tarvis says she hopes fans and the athletes don't expect to knock off powerhouses competing this week in Las Vegas. I, Norman Hall. Venezuela's opposition National Assembly on Thursday appointed three exiled lawmakers to direct it and create a commission to control foreign assets, including oil refiner Citgo Petroleum, as the outgoing leader Juan Guaido bid farewell and thanked his supporters. The assembly voted last week to remove Guaido as its interim president. The United States and other governments had backed Guaido after deeming the 2018 re-election of President Nicolas Maduro as fraudulent. And the corruption scandal at the European Parliament deepened this week as officials said they would seek to lift immunity on two more lawmakers accused of taking bribes from Qatar. More on this and all the stories we're covering at our website, voanews.com. I'm Marissa Melton, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, January 6th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. M23 rebels reiterate their commitment to peace in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The M23 has already withdrawn from the town of Kibumba. Now it has been done for the military camp of Rumangabo. The M23 is fully committed. An expert will discuss the many important issues concerning Africa that he says were not addressed at last month's U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. South Sudan's SPLMIO says President Salva Kiir cannot revoke its government appointments. The president cannot revoke an appointment of any member from the SPLMIO without the recommendation of the leadership of the SPLMIO. In a conversation this morning with one of Africa's most important writers and intellectuals, those stories plus Samson O'Malley's posts are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A spokesperson for M23 rebels operating in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo says the group is dedicated to fully implementing the decisions of a July meeting in Angola between Presidents Felix Shisekedi and Paul Kagame of Rwanda. That gathering called for a ceasefire and the withdrawal of M23 from occupied towns. This, as Reuters cited on Thursday, a confidential UN intelligence unit report that M23's complete withdrawal from areas under its control has not been confirmed. The DRC has accused Rwanda of supporting the M23 rebels, an allegation Kigali denies. Lawrence Mukanya is the political spokesperson for the M23. He tells me that M23 fighters began withdrawing from the town of Rumagabo on Thursday. The M23 is fully committed to implement the resolution derived from the mini-summit of Rwanda. The M23 has already withdraw from the town of Kibumba. Now it has been done for the military camp of Rumangabo. The M23 is fully committed and respect at the same time lend support to the regional effort in a way to fund peace in the DRC. You claim that uh, the DRC army continue to attack your positions. What evidence do you have? It has been found that the DRC government doesn't want peace at all, is in a constant search of military victory by all means. While the M23 is implementing the resolution derived from the mini-summit of Luanda, the DRC government coalition is attacking 
all the positions of the M23 in total violation of the ceasefire in place. Indeed, there are many uh, evidences that support our claim. First of all, we have MONESCO, which is on the ground. It records all the attacks that comes from the DRC government, coalitions against our positions. We have the East African Regional Forces on the ground as well, which uh, actually record as well the attacks from the DRC government coalitions. Apart from these two, we have videos of preparations. We have videos on the ground showing them attacking our positions. So all these evidences are available. So... We are actually again urging the DRC government to stop this warmongering option to follow the path of peace, to actually respect for once the resolution of Luanda. If you were to state in few words or few sentences, what is the purpose of your movement? What is the purpose of the M23 fighting? The M23 is not a warmongering movement. It is a Congolese movement that advocates for inclusion, and diversity for all. It fights against bad governance and all its anti-values, namely corruption, tribalism, hate speech, xenophobia, nepotism, community apartheid. But it is dreadful to notice the total silence of the international community on the ongoing slaughtering of Tutsis in the DRC by the DRC government coalition, just like the period prior the genocide of Tutsi in Rwanda in 1994. Lawrence Mukanya is the political spokesperson for M23. He was speaking with me from Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The South Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition, the main opposition party to the 2018 revitalized peace agreement, is criticizing President Salva Kiir for revoking the appointment of Amar Aten Alayo as Speaker of the Jonglea State Legislative Assembly. Pork Buff Balua, the SPLMIO Director of Information, says President Kiir's decision is unilateral and was not recommended by the SPLMIO leadership. Balu Wang describes the decision as an illegal, flagrant violation of the peace deal. Deng Gai Deng reports from Bo. In a decree read on the state-run TV, President Salfaki revoked the appointment of Amir Atanyalier as the Speaker of the Jonglei State Legislative Assembly. In his statement Tuesday night, Kir did not name an immediate replacement for Alier. Kir appointed Alier to the post in 2021. In accordance with the power-sharing arrangements enshrined in the country's 2018 revitalized peace agreement. Pork Both Baluang, the information director in the SPLMIO, which is the main opposition party signatory to the revitalized peace agreement, criticized Kir's action. The decision of President Sakakir to revoke the appointment of the right honorable uh, speaker of Jonglei State Amer. Uh, it is a unilateral decision by the president and the and the SPLMIO leadership did not recommend that. Uh, it is a violation to the agreement, uh, which gave us as an uh, SPLMIO uh, the leadership the right to recommend uh, any members to assume a certain position based on uh, our ratios in the power sharing or chapter one. Uh, it is a grave violation to the agreement, and it is uh, unprocedural. Baluang says the SPLM-IO leadership, led by first Vice President Riek Machar, was surprised by Kir's decision. 
He calls it a flagrant violation of the 2018 agreement. The right procedure is that the parties which that member uh, belong to will be uh, the party to recommend his or her appointment or vice versa, not other parties. We cannot uh, now uh, uh, revoke appointment of a, of a member of an SPLM IG or so on. The same thing that the, the president cannot revoke uh, an appointment of any member from the SPLMIO without the recommendation of the leadership of the SPLMIO. He released the Sudan People's Liberation Movement in Government, or SPLMIG. Balwan calls on Kir to withdraw his decree, saying such decisions might jeopardize the implementation of the agreement and the new roadmap the parties agreed to last year. Uh, we urge the president to call back that decision, and also we urge the SPLM IG to respect the agreement and also to adhere to the implementation of the agreement in Latin spirit and to adopt a collegial uh, uh, spirit uh, and to so that we can move forward smoothly regarding the implementation of the chapters of the agreement. Balwang says the revitalized peace agreement is a transformative document that paves the way for the needed reforms to the government institutions. He says a commitment by all the parties to respect and implement the agreement is the only way to bring sustainable peace for the people of South Sudan. Repeated efforts to reach President Kir's office for comment were unsuccessful. Here's SPLMIG and several opposition groups signed the revitalized peace agreement in 2018, ending years of civil war that killed hundreds of thousands of people. But its provisions, including the formation of a nationally unified army, remained largely unimplemented. In August last year, the SPLMIG and the other groups that signed the agreement, including the SPLMIO, agreed on a so-called roadmap to extend the transitional government for two years until 2025. Under the roadmap, the parties should conduct elections by December 2024. For VOA News, I am Deng Guiding in We have this listener mail from South Sudan expressing frustration with the slow pace of peace implementation in the country. I'm James Ray Majok from Bantu Town, South Sudan. I BO News Daybreak Apirka. I want to make an appeal to South Sudanese tribe who are killing themselves in Abia territory, especially Twitch community and Ngok community. We are South Sudanese. Let not kill ourselves. Let us devolve our countries. Let us sit together as people of one nation and one country. We need to have a peace and we need to have a unity among ourselves as all Sudanese. The year 2023 is a year of peace and reconciliation. Let us coincide and let our peace and harmony among ourselves. 
Thanks. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, January 6th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Many important issues concerning Africa were not discussed at last month's U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, according to Foundation for Defense of Democracy's founder and President Clifford May. He tells viewers Douglas Mpuga that both the U.S. and African leaders missed an opportunity to address major concerns for Africa. Well, I'd have to give it a very low mark. I guess if I was being generous, maybe a C minus, but uh, but that, I think that is generous. I'm not sure what goals it achieved. It's good that the president met with uh, with with all of these 50 African leaders, but I'm from everything I could follow, I didn't. I don't think very much was accomplished in terms of goals. And worse than that, I didn't think very much was discussed, much less debated. And I think there are a lot of subjects that really do need to be discussed and debated rather than simply, as I think happened, uh, sort of presenting the African leaders with, well, here's how the U.S. sees it, and we're sure you see it the same way, and um, it's all wonderful, and let's have dinner. Talking to many African observers, in Africa, they believe that major issues concerning the continent were not addressed. So do you agree with that? Yes, I, I very much agree with that. And I, I wrote a column on this, as you, as you know, for the Washington Times. Um, and there are any number of issues that I think are absolutely critical right now to be discussed, to be debated, where the U.S. could help or wouldn't help, or in some cases where the U.S. was hurting and they weren't. And, and I'll tell you that one of the ones that I think is most important and most mo- most troubling. Uh, if you look at Africa's needs right now, I would say Afri- Africans need abundant and affordable energy. And President Biden um, has seen it as his task to end fossil fuels, to wage a war on fossil fuels, to discourage drilling for, for, for oil and gas, investment in, in all this, uh, refineries, all of that. I don't see how that doesn't do Africa damage. Now, I know, uh, at, for example, at the uh, recent environmental conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, COP27, uh, they said, well, you know, the Western countries, America and Europe, will give a lot of money to African countries. I don't think that does the trick. If that doesn't help the African farmer who cannot use an electric vehicle to plow uh, his fields, who cannot use an electrical vehicle to get his crops to market. I've lived in Africa. I know if you, if you can't do those things, you're a subsistence farmer at best. You just grow and eat what you grow and maybe store a little grain someplace. That's 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 not progress. That's not development. Uh, electric vehicles will work. And then you say, well, how about renewables? No, wind and solar are not going to power uh, tractors and trucks in Africa anytime soon. And the other thing is that probably 600 million sub-Saharan Africans don't even have electricity, not even electricity so that they can read at night, so that they can um, refrigerate food, much less freeze food, so that they can cool off with a fan, much less an air conditioner. Electricity is a, is a great need in many parts of Africa, particularly, I mean, obviously for, for, the, for those who are poorer. And where are you gonna get electricity from if not from hydrocarbons? How do you compare this uh, President Biden Africa Leaders Summit with the Chinese, the way they handle their situation, which has led to a lot of uh, predatory loans to African governments? 
Well, I think the Chinese are more clever about it, but I also think, and I think, and a subject that might have been discussed, and I don't think was, um, what the Chinese are up to in Africa. I think a lot of what the Chinese are up to strikes me as a form of resource exploitation and neo-imperialism. Uh, one of the examples of this that I point out in my column would be in, in, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. What's going on there? Well, what's going on there is you've got mines that, the, that, are, that are essentially, I believe, been sold to China. And you've got thousands, actually the numbers of 40,000 children mining cobalt. And then they mine the cobalt under probably well, reportedly inhumane conditions and in ways that cause environmental damage. They send the cobalt that they extract to China, where the China, where China processes, it, processes it and uses it in batteries for electric vehicles. That was Clifford May, founder and president of Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He spoke with my colleague, Douglas Mpuga. Kenyan author Nguji Watiango is known as one of Africa's most important contemporary writers and intellectuals who has made significant contributions to literature, theater, and cultural studies. Most of his books, including Weep Not Child, The River Between, and Petals of Blood, are considered as classic African literature. In his work, Nguji, who turned 85 yesterday, Thursday, often addressed themes of colonialism, independence, and cultural identity. He is also known for use of literature as a tool for social change. In his 2009 book, Something Torn and New, an African Renaissance, Thiongo explores the legacy of colonialism on African languages, examining the role of culture, education, as he offers a vision of hope and possibility for the future of the continent. He spoke to viewers Jackson Vungani about the power of languages, his call for African authors to write in their own tongues, and the dangers of negative attitudes of African elites towards local languages. This negative attitude towards ourselves become normalized, and they may translate into, oh, we have no originality. So that even when you, an, an educated African person may have a PhD, he may still not have the confidence that arises from knowing that that PhD is somehow also arises from um, his entire relation to his own culture and languages and so on. In other words, he sees that PhD, that achievement, as a tribute to his connection with European languages and cultures and so on. Of course, I want to add very, very emphatically that there's nothing wrong in any person knowing as many languages as possible. And it's very important for people to be very effective in whatever language is the, langu the language of power. What is basically wrong in terms of policies and personal practices is to assume that one's own language and cultures have nothing to give. Now, in this book, you said that the, the African Renaissance began at the historical moment, uh, which was a catalyst to resistance movements across the continent, movements like the Mau Mau in Kenya, the ANC in South Africa, and many others around the continent. And you talk about the turning point of Afro-modernity being the 1945 Manchester Congress, uh, which you say provided a, a momentum to the 50s and the 60s liberation movements. What would you say happened to those movements in the subsequent years, the 80s and the 90s? The idea of Africa, when Europeans first came, 
or colonizers came to our own countries. We fought against them as individual communities. So uh, if it's a Yoruba, they fought against the colonial invasions as Yorubas and so on. But once we were occupied, there came a moment when we were no longer struggling against the colonial presence as individual linguistic communities, but rather as all the communities in a given territory. Mm-hmm. Not even that, we began to think of ourselves in terms of a continent of African peoples. So whether we were in Kenya or South Africa or West Africa, we talked about Africa, okay? So that's what I mean when the idea of Africa begins to be the organizing principle. It becomes a collective, right? Yeah, because collective. We are now where we moved a higher level. And not only that, it's very interesting that the, that idea of Africa, as I tried to explain in the book, in a way was born abroad by those Africans who were already detached from the continent through mm. enslavement because they could think of Africa as a whole. So Marcus Gavi could talk about Africa for Africans at home and abroad, for instance. Mm. Du Bois and others could also talk about Africa as a whole. And that idea of Africa then also becomes an organizing force in nationalist, anti-colonialist struggles. ANC called itself African National Congress, and there are many others who call themselves uh, national conventions or congresses also all over Africa. So that's what, this is what I'm talking about, the idea of Africa becoming an organizing uh, force. And when I say that the African Renaissance has begun, I'm including the whole anti-colonial movement, because that's very, very important. And the achievement of independence was a monumental gain, obviously. That was Kenyan author Nguji Watiango, one of Africa's most important contemporary writers and intellectuals. He was speaking with viewers Jackson Vunganyi. It is time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too. James will begin the sports in Kenya where the country's president, William Ruto, has reaffirmed his government's resolve to win the fight against doping in sports. The president met head of World Athletics, Lord Sebastian Coe, at the State House Nairobi on Thursday, where he revealed that the government has already set aside $25 million to aid the fight against the menace of doping over the next five years. Kenya escaped a potential doping ban from international athletics last month following a rise in doping cases in the country. World Athletics President Sebastian Coe on Thursday noted that it is inevitable that the extra resourcing Testing and intelligence level that the government of Kenya has brought on board in the war on doping will see the number of positive cases rising. There aren't any quick or easy solutions here, and there are no quick or easy scapegoats. But I was pleased uh, in the commitment that has been shown, and particularly uh, with my meeting uh, with President Ruto, who made it very clear that the work that is government-led on this challenge uh, is, with his blessing, 
his guidance, his drive. And now to South Africa, where the Olympic gold medal won by swimmer Jean Harrison Brisky, which was stolen in the Eastern Cape, has been recovered to the relief of the family. Her grandson, Craig Murray, said the medal, which she received at the age of 16, after winning the 100 meters backstroke at the 1952 Helsinki Games in Finland, was returned to them by a garden service who found it while cutting grass nearby. Thieves ransacked his East London home at the end of December, escaping with the Olympic medal as well as her gold medal from the 1954 Commonwealth Games, which she said held huge sentimental value to the family. In tennis news, Tunisian Ange Jabour took a big step towards defending her world number two ranking with her 7-6-3-6-1 victory over Sarana Christia at the Adelaide International one on Thursday. Jabour has Jessica Pegula breathing down her neck with the world number three trying to chase her down via the United Cup. Pegula has been phenomenal for the United States but Jabour holds decent points cushion over the American and Iran to the final in Adelaide will put her out of reach. Jabor will face Ukraine's Martha Kosyuk in her last eight March. And now to some football news. Mozambique became the first nation to arrive in Algiers, the capital of Algeria, ahead of the African Nations Championship Algeria 2022, led by former international player Chikwiho Konde and now head coach. The South Africans are participating in their second African Nations Championship preparations, which kicks off on the 13th of January 2023. And that's it on the Friday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson. Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a nice weekend. And that's it for this Friday, January 6th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing you will have a great weekend. We'll see you again on Monday morning.